Welcome to Career in Ruins, where this week will be our last week, at least for a few weeks. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the podcast with me, Lawrence Shaw. And me, Derek Pittman. How you doing, bud? All right? Oh, not too bad. Yeah, it's getting a bit cooler in the booth this I week. I know, nice. the booth uh, is cool. Yeah, although that does mean, does that mean winter's drawing near? Yeah, probably. I'm going to go to Greece. Oh. <laughs> you, you worked in Greece? I, I have, yeah, yeah. Oh, have I, I not mentioned like, it? No, I didn't yeah, you yeah. mentioned it. Yeah. Well, I'm going there in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how you been? Good yeah, week? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, pretty decent week. Um, been doing some fun outreach, um... Lots more summertime writing. Next week I have a few days off. I might build a chicken coop. Ah. Um, depending on how the week pans out, I might also just chill out and do very little. But yeah, been been pretty good. Oh, how well deserved. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Um, I've been on holiday in Denmark for a little while, which yeah. is very nice. Bit of a uh, bit of sightseeing, a bit of supporting of the other half, and oh, yeah. uh, a bit of relaxing. So I can't can't complain. Lovely watching so, yeah. watching people cycle around on mountain bikes. Watching pretty... not not participating. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm nowhere near good enough. For that. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, so what's been on your mind? Well, I'm mine's actually relevant to something I've been doing today. Ooh. So uh, as as part of my post at the National Park, yep. I provide support to the Forestry Commission across the Central Southern District. Yep. So this is everywhere from Wareham, your neck of woods, yeah, up yeah. to Sussex, up to Surrey, down onto the Isle of Wights, and everything in between. So anywhere where the Forestry Commission have enclosures or woodlands, mm. or whether they rent lease land, or whether they own land on behalf of the Crown, whatever the case, wherever they're managing it, they contact me to ask for a bit of advice for their archaeological impacts. Okay. Um, and something i've been seeing increasingly not and not just from forestry commission land but across other states in the national park um from private estates and across something we're seeing across the country is um ash dieback okay or colara dieback is is the official term okay good good (laughs) um but um and so basically i'm super busy at the moment going Mm. around all these different woodlands um where they're planning to manage ash yeah and, and this dieback because it's, it's got this fungus that infects the trees and they start to die and there's a real issue that the trees falling down and particularly in public woodlands where people are walking along and walking around you don't want a tree to land on your head no that's unfortunate yeah. um so and it's such a shame to see these beautiful trees that have to be removed or mm. either because they're already dead or they might be starting to die or just to overcome the future impact that they might have and I was walking around Mitchell Dever today, yeah. up, up in um, up near Win- just north of Winchester, mm-hmm. and I was looking at these areas. And there's a mixture of this ash work that they're going to be doing, but also thinning of beech and thinning of oak. And I was just marking up archaeological sites prior yeah. to, to harvesters going in, making sure they have as minimal impact on on the archaeology that's there. And we've been using loads of different techniques, lidar ground survey all the great stuff but i started to think about the ash and mm. the visibility of ash in the pollen record okay um as this fungus that's been brought in from another country starts to, to kill and a bit a bit like we saw with the um dutch elms disease mm-hmm. and how it spreads across the country and these these plants die and they they, they disappear and they're no longer visible um in theory in yeah, the, in the pollen, record. The pollen record would would vanish. Yes, yeah, so or they'd at least be, it'd be yeah. a, as as things start depositing again. Yeah, um, yeah, there'd be a time slot where there is no ash. Yeah, there a bit is. of a dip. Yeah, yeah, and um, it just 
I've been reading recently about the the creation of the new forest and mm. particularly looking at the the role of pollen to help us understand how the woodland was cleared by human activity from the Mesolithic all the way, th- and then management of the woodlands all the way through to medieval, post medieval time periods. And um, the pollen record has been really important to help mm. people understand how human behaviour has allowed certain trees and things to be visible. And I'm no expert in this area, I should say, but it, it, it's something I've been looking at. And I start thinking about the ash not being there mm. and this assumption in the past that human, the, the pollen record's different because humans have influenced yeah, yeah. it. And granted, humans have influenced it by bringing it, introducing this this fungus that's yeah, killing yeah. back the trees. <laughs> but um, it's not to do with clearing or management. It's mm. to do with a, um, a disease that the trees are catching. That's an interesting point. And I, 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 I like you, am no, <laughs> no pollen record expert. Um, I wonder, as you say, if, if, if we were an archaeologist looking back on this period, would we see, interpret it as people exploiting more um, more of those trees, mm. more more specific to that species. How does that change affect the other species of tree in the woods? Do they do they grow in place of it? Do you see a loss overall? Well, it's, at the moment, at least, there's more ash growing, but mm. presumably that's going to die immediately. So at some point, there will be no more ash that can seed, mm. and there'll be a seed bed. But then also there might be some ash that are resistant to the disease and then you, you then it won't be a problem because i start planting those mm. but um interesting i was chatting to the forester in in another site and they've got this um dutch elms or they've got elm mm. that's been modified to be resistant to the elms disease oh, okay and they've done a trial area where they planted loads of it mm. and the idea is they're going to plant it reintroduce it share share those species so that um it can be passed on to other areas and mm. therefore that elm pollen it will ha- count it will, will increase re- yeah it'll re-emerge and yeah. this might be the case for the ash as well as, as, mm. as the management and as they well, I presume there's going to be an element of um, what's it called when they modif- genetic modification genetic mm. modification of it to, to pull up strains that are resistant to this fungus but uh, anyway, as I was walking around looking at lumps and bumps <laughs> and lost banjo enclosures and bronze age mounds and, <laughs> and all these other things, I, I got quite interested in the pollen record and how that will change and when we look back in a thousand, two thousand, mm. three years. Yeah. I think maybe we should get a, a pollen specialist as a future that guest. That is a great um, idea. If anyone's listening, uh, tweet in and let us know. And, uh, <laughs> We'll we'll come and find you for a future episode. Of course, it's all irrelevant because we won't. The, we'll, the plastic age will have destroyed the planet in, in <laughs> five years' time. So, um, fair enough. We're all doomed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what about you, bud? Ah, oh, bubbles. Bubbles. I've been thinking about bubbles today. Mm-hmm. I was driving down here thinking about um, archaeology and a podcast and what to talk about, and it made me think about something that sprung to mind yesterday, really. As I, as I mentioned, I've been doing some interesting outreach recently over at Hengisbury Head Visitor Centre um, alongside Kath Walker, who we had on mm-hmm. an, an earlier podcast, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about my view of the site and how it's it's a little bit skewed. It's it's in a bubble, if you will, of the people I talk to 
mostly about Hengistbury Header archaeologists. I see it as an archaeological site, it's in lectures I teach. Um, but maybe, maybe I should be thinking about it more as a monutrump, as, as, a, as a lost bit of heritage in a way, because the the way Hengistbury, I think, is viewed by many people outside of our subject is a is a natural space, a, a place to take your dog for a walk, to go on nature trails, to go and see some of the world's most expensive beach huts. <laughs> Lots of things that don't reflect its long archaeological history. And one uh, one woman said to me, we were we were introducing um, them to prehistoric pot, pot making pottery uh, as a way of transmitting heritage knowledge so it seems to have worked in this instance because she came up to me and said I had no idea that the history of Hengistbury Head was so rich and so long mm. and but to me that's all that's what it is yes. it's it's a it's an Iron Age monument it had Mesolithic origins it's had frequent use throughout the past and to me the whole site is is an archaeological site it just happens to have some nature on top and I wonder how many of my perceptions of things are skewed by the bubble I'm in and it just got me thinking. I can really. completely relate to that because I I get really frustrated with everyone talking about the natural new forest, <laughs> and I'm very much of the not so natural new mm. forest because it's entirely man, it's a cultural landscape, yeah. entirely man-made. Whether it's the ponies that have created the habitats by trampling, and the ponies were introduced by William the Conqueror, or um, the forestry that's taken place, mm. um, or the felling of trees that we can tell through the pollen analysis of the <laughs> That's so great. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And my, I think Andy touched on this last week yeah, about yeah. his monu trump. Yeah. Um, but also my own PhD research. I look looking at fifty thousand Instagram posts associated with the new forest. Yeah. Over a few month period, and of that, there are four posts with archaeology wow. attached to it. There are. 150 posts with history attached to it. Mm. No one's thinking about it the same way. And it's really important, I think, with anything you're doing that is engaging the general public, it's engaging engaging school children, is to, for us as heritage experts, as archaeologists, Mm. and sharing our profession, is to not or is to appreciate that not everyone's thinking yeah, the same way we're thinking think outside of a bubble. What you do you <laughs> What do you mean you don't, you're not looking at this the same yeah. way? What, what are why you don't you understand this a, to be the a most dragonfly walk? <laughs> yeah, there's a heritage trail over dragonfly, there. <laughs> boring fly. Uh, there's, a, there's a fantastic book, and I, I, I suspect you're a fan as well. Um, Hoskins, the making of the English landscape. <sighs> yeah, and it, it touches on a lot of the, the creation of spaces, and I think we may even have mentioned it in the podcast already. But it it's it's this this sense that culture and nature are so intertwined and thinking back to your your prehistoric pollen records um the the changes may well be related to disease but that disease in a way has been facilitated by the movement of people mm-hmm. and the changing desires of people and as you say in a modern context the reintroduction of species again reflects cultural choices influencing nature and this is a, a rabbit hole I know you and I go down time and time again <laughs> but uh, it's it it just it just really rung home to me just how how much of a bubble I, I forget that I'm in sometimes mm. it's worth remembering that and being aware this has been really nice because I think listeners listen to our podcast and assume that we put loads of effort into it and plan what we're going to say, <laughs> but neither of us knew what we were going to talk no, about, no. as ever, coming to this That's been a nice little uh, conversation. I'm I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. It's nice to just catch up. And <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I completely agree. And yeah, human influence on landscape is huge, but also 
modern perception and is and understanding that perception mm. to then be able to change uh, behavioral change and appreciation um and even things like citizen science which i know you've got a new phd student start mm. student starting soon yeah. um that's something i'm focusing on with my final aspects um being able to inform that project mm. is essential so being on un- your starting point is to be able to understand where your target audience I was say, speaking of target audiences that's something else I learned this week quite rapidly I um we were the exercise we did today I had a bit of a practice last week with some volunteers over at Hengisbury and the volunteers were all of a, of a demographic probably between 20 and 70 um all quite keen on learning a bit about history and archaeology um, so it's quite a nice dynamic chatting them through oh why do we temper the pots why do we do it this way and that way what's the archaeological rationale got to the site first thing monday morning ready for the first kind of outreach exercise and the demographic was six years old and younger <laughs> all of my bands all of my pattern and crucially all of my jokes were very age inappropriate so i had to completely redraft my whole plan for the could day. you say uh, you'd lost your temper oh <laughs> ceramic jokes so has it come to this <laughs> oh, i was feeling a bit groggy <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, did you try and slip away i'm going to turn this conversation around <laughs> oh we've gone potty that's that was desperate that, yeah, that was, <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm gonna throw that one out <laughs> we'll throw <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah. <laughs> this week, oh, Archeo puns. That Archeo could replace t- Monu Trumps. Yeah. I'd love that. Next one. Um, yeah. There is no Monu Trumps this week. No. Which is no. a shame because we're not going to have a podcast for a little while. But um, Yeah. I suppose if I was going to do Monu Trumps, I'd bring in Hengisbury Head. <laughs> it's accessible if you like insect hunts. <laughs> but it does have a wonderful her- heritage centre, and I'd encourage any of our listeners to go and have a look. I'd then throw in Mitchell Dever, which is where I was today. That's because perfect. there's an archaeology walk, which mm-hmm. is great. There's, it's a scheduled landscape, which is unique. And there's a car park which is free, so... Call it a draw? Yeah, got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, who have we got this week? This week we have Professor Jane Downs. So mm-hmm. this is my last interview from the Cook Islands. Okay, yeah. And um, she's going to talk about how she's gone into archaeology, how she's looked at heritage management, and also around Bronze Age um, burial processes and uh, wow. and other aspects such as that. So Fantastic. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Jane, welcome to Korea Ruins. Um, Thank you. We're still here in the Cook Islands and uh, been working very hard, not been doing too much snorkeling. <laughs> no, only a bit. <laughs> I wonder if you could start by just giving us an introduction to how you got into archaeology um, and some of the projects you worked on along the way and, mm-hmm. and your trajectory to where you are now. Mm-hmm. So, at school, I thought of archaeology as something I might like to do, but I had not much idea about it. Um, and I was doing medieval history as an A-level, and I'd done more modern history as an O-level and thought it was terrible, like just terribly boring. Um, but I found the medieval history really exciting. So I thought, ooh, maybe if I look even further back, that would be more interesting. 
So I went on an excavation when I was at school with um, Sheffield University, actually, and then went digging in France, too. Wow. Yep, as a, as a schoolgirl. And then um, thought, that's me, that's what I'm going to do. So I went to Manchester University and did my degree um, and was greatly encouraged by Dave Coombs, who was a, a great archaeologist, a really great inspiration to students. You know, he really put me on the right track and put me in touch with some um, Francis Pryor's excavations okay. on the Fens. Yeah. So when I left university, I went to work for the Fenland Archaeology Trust, working at first at Etton, the Neolithic Cause of Enclosure, and then Flag Fen. Wow. So I was there actually for the best part of 10 years. 10 years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Doing field archaeology. Um, because I really liked field work and didn't really have an interest at that time in uh, being an academic in the lecturing post. Um, after that, I left and went to Glasgow and worked for Guard, the unit. Guard, okay, so more field yeah. guard. Yes, mm -hmm. so I was a project officer and then a project manager in Guard. Um, and during that time, I um, developed an interest in the Bronze Age in Orkney. Um, I'd been working at Barnhouse with Colin Richards and thought that the Bronze Age in Orkney was really neglected. Uh, I was interested in Bronze Age burials, so I started my own project there. Um, I just created a project design because I um, was and still am very interested in heritage management too. So I created a project design that involved looking at um, the barrows and the terrible state that a lot of them were in through mm -hmm. stock damage and various types of damage. Uh, but I was also fascinated by cremation because I thought that was an, a really neglected area in terms of research and looking at the practice of cremation. So while I was working first for Garda's unit and then moved to Sheffield working for Arcus, I also was undertaking research in Orkney on a project that was funded by Historic Environment Scotland um, and then doing my PhD at the same time. So I did my PhD part-time over a really quite long period because um, I was always working as well. So when I was in Sheffield working with Arcus, I was a assistant director of Arcus, so working on commercial projects and doing research as well. And at the same time while there, I wrote up um, a site in Shetland that had been um, dug by some amateurs and then by somebody else. So I put that together as a monograph. Um, visited Bali to look at cremation practice wow. and wrote something on that too. So um, that's been a source of great inspiration for me and found out a lot about cremation practice and then um, I got a I saw a job advertised in Orkney right. for being a lecturer mm -hmm. in Orkney so I thought well you know maybe I could combine my interest in field work and practice um, with being a lecturer too so this was to establish a master's program which I established in archaeological practice uh, and since then have set up a whole department and now an archaeology institute as part of the University of the Highlands and Islands. 
Um, I've been increasingly also interested in sustainability and in climate change. Okay. Um, because where we live in Orkney, there's a huge amount of coastal erosion, which is due to increased sea level rises and increased storminess. Mm -hmm. So as a sort of area for research, I've looked at a number of sites that are eroding into the sea and um, now I'm very involved in looking at heritage and climate change in different parts of the world. Fantastic. So when you're starting at the Fenland Trust, mm -hmm. how did you find the, the excavations you were doing for them and the research you were doing them differed from working, say, for Arcus or in Orkney? Is it a very different type of archaeology? Presumably quite a lot of it was waterlogs and... or not, maybe not? Yeah, so obviously on the fens, flag fens, waterlogged, but um, Etten, not so much, but quite a lot of waterlogged material. But, um, I mean, it's all about the same principles, really, of um, learning how to be a good excavator and how projects work and how um, um, funding's gained, I guess, and you know how projects develop. So it was a really formative period for me, okay. and had lots of things that I could transfer into uh, what I went on to do. Mm. Okay. That's great. And um, just thinking with the, I mean, it, it, was that over quite a short time? You, so you were ten years in the Fenlands. How long did you, did you stay at Arcus for? Um, I was there for five years. Mm -hmm. So between graduating in 1984 mm -hmm. and then moving to Orkney, where I currently am, that was not till 1999. Okay. Yeah, so it was 15 years. And your PhD, was on, was that around cremation? Yes, so okay. my PhD is on cremation practice. Mm. That's really interesting. Yep, she's what? a legend. Uh, there was something in there that got me frantically Googling, I must admit. <laughs> um, Jane touched upon one of my favourite sites, which is Flag Fen in Peterborough. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it could be described as a Bronze Age ritual site, I suspect. It's a, it's a one kilometre long um, causeway uh, out into the Fens with an artificial island and lots of ritual deposits, loads of metalwork and um, bones in the form of joints of meat, but even um, several collie-sized dogs, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so real rich ringos. material mm -hmm. culture, ring ringos of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but it was built from 60,000 upright timbers and 250,000 horizontal planks. Did you just know that off the top of your head? Off the top of my head, oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> so that, that could go some way to explaining that dip in the pollen record we were talking about <laughs> earlier. <laughs> Very good point. I, my first experience of Flag Fen, I, I rode at university mm. and we used to always go to Peterborough. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I'd yeah. row past there every day and see a sign for Flag Fen and go, oh, I really wish I was in there and not wearing a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and I never went in. <laughs> I've never been. I think, should we go on a pilgrimage? Maybe yeah. we should do a, an archaeological road trip, podcast road trip one mm, day. That's a good um, idea. Take a, take a task cam. You and I get in Career a Career in ruins on tour. Yes. We need to search out some funding. <laughs> yes, yeah. If anyone wants to fund our future road trip, please uh, visit our Patreon Guaranteed account. one interview. <laughs> yeah. Guaranteed one stop on the road trip. <laughs> yeah. Or offer some accommodation. <laughs> oh, if we take Harry's camp, and we're laughing. Yeah, perfect. How are you in? <laughs> <laughs>
yeah, really, I mean, what I loved about Jane's view, and which is different to what we've had so far, is that Jane went into a very commercial background initially. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's something we've been starkly missing in our interviews so far. And yeah. And we'll, I know we're hoping to we pin down a few interesting you, yeah. people already that are commercial excavators, and we apologise to those of you that are listening out there that are commercial excavators because you aren't currently fairly represented, I, I'd argue. Yeah, we'll, we'll get you into season two. <laughs> yes, yeah. But um, Jane started off as a commercial archaeologist, spent 10 years in the Fenland Archaeology Trust. which And then five years at Arcus, which is a company I, I remember quite well, very fondly when I was uh, doing my PhD at Sheffield. They, I did a lot of consultancy work for Arcus, and it's fair to say they funded at least a year of my studies. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But then, then doing part-time PhD as well, I mean, mm. and, in, and flipping between commercial and academic studies it's a it's an interesting career track and i think maybe one of our first commercial victims shall we say or guests um could be someone that's doing that at this very moment yes yeah yeah it's a nice idea to think Mm. about the 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 way you can join two worlds together yeah and i think it nicely represents that they don't have to be polarized the opposite yeah yeah they can Um, complement each other quite nicely i think i bet that was really difficult yes she talks about how long she took but um yeah i mean i yeah, as a current part-time student myself, I can, yeah, can vouch for how, I, how tricky that is. Even having done it full-time but trying to find ways to, to bring in cash, I remember it was a tough balance. And, yeah, I don't envy you there. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> um, and then, obviously, she's a lady of my own heart in the form of she, she loves a bit of heritage management. Yeah. Um, I, I love that aspect of my current work, mm. looking at the best way to protect um, monuments and look after them. She mentions about the Bronze Age barrows and... and identifying how to protect those and that ran really nicely in parallel with her research into cremation urns and, mm. and cremation rituals and I love the idea of going out of country to um, to get a bit of ethnographic input yeah, yeah. and um, into to how things are taking place how people are cremating people I, Colin touched on that yeah, I think, as yeah. well and, um, and it's, it's it's come up a couple of times I think but yeah it's it's a really I think valuable aspect of our work and an enjoyable one. And in 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 our own project, the work you and I have been doing in in Greece, we've been looking at how early towns develop, and some of our future grant work is looking at um, the kind of the the relationship between people's identity and the, the geographic space they live in, and an insight we've gained from more recent history and ethnographic work is that while towns seem to move identities and even the town name seems to stay the same and move with the people of that town Mm. that's an insight that we would never have known without that kind of contemporary parallel so it's so valuable I think Mm, mm, absolutely now um, really interesting just career I think up to to date Mm. and different trajectories it's something we've seen so far one one last thing that that Jane touched on which I was quite taken by is the climate change aspect of the work Mm. and I think that's something to think about maybe even something we we could incorporate into a a future episode or even a future special is to think about what archaeology can bring to the debates around climate change Mm. because I think we're in a we're in a unique position in terms of the the social sciences the hard sciences the histories and that we can we have one eye on on long-term cultural histories, traditions, trajectories, but also we have the long-term scientific rigour to kind of see the symptoms of climate change, and not necessarily histories of um, human-led climate change, but human responses to 
big fluctuations in climate, for example, mm. could be quite is well. It is a very important aspect of a lot of archaeological research at the moment, and I think archaeology as a discipline can bring an awful lot to that. Discussion. Yeah, I think also as as a discipline, we do catch the public's imagination. Like, mm. Oh, something new, something's discovered, something's important. Heritage and our history is important, mm. and people buy into that, whether it's Time Team or whether it's through citizen science projects. And whilst at the start of this project, I was moaning that people are looking at oh, all the nature, the nature, <laughs> go out the archaeology, it's absolutely flipped the other way as well, mm. and that um, the the impact on heritage and the globe, the impact of global warming on on archaeology and heritage. Um, is an is a posit- not a positive way, but a vis- visual way of representing global global warming and the impact. Yeah, I think we can do our part. And yeah, we can we can almost highlight material manifestations, whereas climate change and and sort of it's very it's very macro in terms of scale. And on the ground, we experience fluctuations in weather that might one day be baking hot and one day be horribly cold and snowy. Mm. Uh, but the, the kind of the long-term human responses to those trajectories and those those kind of macro issues are quite interesting and mm. a story we can and should tell. I think. Mm, agreed. Um, just before we move on to the last few questions, mm. um, I love the idea of waterlogged sites. Mm. I've never worked. I think the closest I've ever come to a waterlogged site is um, I was excavating a site in Worthing with. AOC archaeology as a Roman site. There's a huge pond that mm. back filled, and they just took a big digger through it, and we we're taking sample pollen samples. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and I got to draw it in plan, and it's quite interesting. But um, no interesting discoveries, and I, I can't think state of any waterlogged artifacts that I've discovered. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had think as well. Um, in terms of waterlogged sites, in sort of full-fledged waterlogged um the site i've recently been been working on um as a field school had waterlogged deposits but unfortunately the soil is so acidic it eats anything oh, no. organic so well we had the conditions we didn't have the reward of working in those conditions i thought you got a cow poo we did get some cow poo yeah so we got a bit not of a, a modern cow poo no a uh, thousand year old cow poo <laughs> not uh, many people can say they no 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 and it was a big pile of cow poo as well so that's a, a real headline win um but i did work on a site some years ago when I was at Wessex that it wasn't waterlogged it was a chalk site it was a Roman cemetery but there was a stone sarcophagus and in fact you can go to Salisbury Museum and see the stone um, sarcophagus that we we dug up and it was partially sealed and it created similar conditions to, to waterlogged in it it was anaerobic so there was no oxygen to, to eat the organic remains and it was it was one of the first times I think I've really been struck by the humanness of remains in the archaeological record. Mm. I think particularly when when I was working commercially, it's easy to detach yourself from, um, I guess we would describe it as saving skeletons from being destroyed by um, buildings Mm -hmm. and and such. Um, But this one had far more human qualities to it. It had leather... I'm not saying it, but it was Mm. she. She had Mm. leather leather boots, um, some hair remaining Mm. um, in a plait, and a small um, child as well. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it was a, it gave me, it made me think a lot more about what we were doing at the time. And I suspect being a young archaeologist in the field, I was probably a bit blasé about things, and it gave me a slightly different perspective Mm. on our kind of treatment and how we interact with human remains. And I, these remains are well beyond our, our cultural limit of, of connectivity 
in terms of ancestors and mm. such but it's it's still a person and it, it, it having those elements of organic remains preserved uh, did leave a bit of that kind of personhood mm. um there and uh, i i thought about it actually again a bit a couple of nights ago i watched some of the bethany hughes's um egyptian documentaries oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. um and they were kind of showing through some mummies from a, a cave that had been been uh, stored in that cave for, for many years um, and almost liber- liberated from, from their exile in a sense and put on display in a museum and some of them have such expression of faces preserved I I, I, I don't know where I sit with it, it, mm. it it's I, I know sometimes through the display of human remains archaeology can connect to the public in, in ways that a bit of crusty old pot maybe can't but conversely it's I'm I'm a kind of hardened archaeologist, and I find find it unsettling sometimes yeah. to see such human characteristics represented and displayed in that way. I guess um, preservation, whether through mummification or through through waterlogged sites, mm-hmm. is is one of the most. That's why I got brought this up. I guess is it's one of the most interesting aspects of archaeology because mm. we get an insight into the, another level of insight mm. that we wouldn't necessarily normally get. So whether it's the the axe marks on a, mm. the end the tip of a wooden stake yeah, yeah. or a mummy's face or a bit of a le- leather boot some clothing things that are lost in pretty much 95% yeah, of yeah. all archaeological sites excavated we get such a small insight into mm. the things that do survive in the archaeological rain, remain waterlogged sites in particular are just fascinating and I guess the most recent site of this is Must Farm, mm. uh, which again, yeah. um, uh, I guess, it, kind of close. Fenland site, Fenland yeah, site, yeah. yeah. And if for those of you that haven't seen it, I mean, you would be surprised if you you yeah. haven't seen it. You must have been living under a bridge. There's some great <laughs> media coverage um, the last few years, and I'd thoroughly recommend getting on their Facebook page. But the finds, this is a site that caught on fire, a Bronze Age yes, settlement yeah. that caught on fire and collapsed into the Fenlands. Was covered by, um, covered by. Silty deposits mm-hmm. and stayed wet, and they excavated it prior to quarrying taking place, I think, or water levels dropping. Mm. And the discoveries are just insane, it's limitless, isn't it? Whether they're the most beautiful metal artifacts, mm. um, bronze adzes, and the adzes like that. attached to a hand, yeah, just... to the individual pots, to mm. fabrics. Yeah, and it, this one site has given us an amazing window into the Bronze Age that we'd never had before and I know Flag Fen is similar to that mm. again but the, particularly the, oh, the richness the, of that the remains of Mass Farm are amazing but that, that whole that whole theme really it's another bubble in a sense that if you kind of close your eyes and imagine a past it's quite a cold and inorganic past you, we imagine bones and flint and metal and we don't sort of think of the fleshy parts of the past mm. the leather the wood the soft the organic and it's it's so easy to forget that element of it when we're sort of surrounded by bricks and stone and and kind of hard inorganic mm-hmm. materials ninety five percent of the time when something like must farm pops up it, it just fuels the both the imagination and the interpretive process yeah, it's amazing absolutely. anyway enough of our rambling yeah. should we get the end half of James let's dive view? back in. Um, so, as part of the podcast, we have three set questions that we like to ask everyone that, that takes part with us. And um, the first one is: Is there? Uh, I'll go. 
as part of the podcast, we've got a number of questions we'd like to ask participants. And the first one is around some, a piece of what you're particularly proud of that you, you've undertaken. I wonder if you could shed some light on that. So I guess I'm particularly proud of my work that I've done on cremation and Bronze Age burial practices. I undertook a really quite a large-scale excavation of a whole cemetery. Whereabouts was that? That's in, in Orkney. Um, and then a number of other cemeteries as well. Mm. So I was looking not only at the burial itself, but the whole structure of the mound and how burial practice operates through the landscape. So I was looking at the temple and spatial aspects, but also at the technology of cremation. So I think, I suppose if anything, I think I've contributed quite a lot to that area of research. So when you say mounds are these traditional Bronze Age tumuli or...? Yes, they're barrows. Barrows, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. so in Orkney they're mostly earthen barrows. Earthen barrows. And there'd be more than one cremation burial? Mm. So what I discovered was that um, rather than being a single feature within a barrow, and these are often thought of as being related to the individual, mm-hmm. that actually hardly any barrows are too bury one person, usually in one kist or stone box or pit. Mm-hmm. There, was, there are more than there's more than one person. Mm-hmm. And then within each barrow there are several interments. But more particularly because I looked in the area outside the barrows through using geophysics and then excavation, I found really big cemeteries around the barrows themselves and I did that in a number of different places. And do, uh, it was do you think that's transferable across Britain, across Europe? or? Yes, I think it is. And I think looking at it in Orkney um, was a good place to do it because there hadn't been intensive agriculture mm-hmm. right close up to the barrows as you find in other places like southern Britain. So, you know, it told us a lot about um, the whole extent of a barrow. So in terms also of project management, um, and what Historic Scotland were wanting to look at was whether they were scheduling the right size of area. Mm, of course. So some, you know, there were some really quite substantial cemeteries that showed how far outside a barrow activities could extend. And also, I found a number of pyre sites too, um, and these are quite ephemeral. Mm. Um, but again, because of the lack of intensive agriculture, they survived, and they were outside the barrows quite often. What sort of composition were they? How did you identify that they were pyre sites? Mm-hmm. So, um, a lot of the time, they're just on the surface, uh, and just burnt areas. But one one of them that I found was actually smothered by the raising of the barrow on top of it. Oh, right. So it had actually put out the fire. Wow. And so you could see the pyre with big logs or charred logs within it and mm. burnt bone and then next to it a kist that also had burnt bone and deposits within it. Mm. Mm. And uh, so you mentioned before about your interest in heritage management. Mm-hmm. Did, did, has it, what, is it, do you think this fed into your interest in that area of, with the Historic England scheduling or is that something you've always... How did that aspect develop your... There was a project that Historic England were doing at the time called Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, so I transferred some of those principles and the way that those sites were being looked at um, to what I was doing in Scotland. And so that was really interesting. I had a friend working 
in historic England at the time and um, so we talked a lot about what was being applied there and I moved that to Paris in Scotland. So moving it forward slightly then, so you said that's a piece of work you're particularly proud of. It, next question we ask sometimes causes a bit of and perhaps it's been described as a difficult question, but is there a piece of work you're quite envious of or wish you'd been involved with that you've read about or you've you've learned about but you thought, wow, that's that's fantastic. I guess. Oh the party bus. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one project that I was really interested in. I'm not sure whether I wanted to be a part of it mm -hmm. because it was so massive, but very interesting is uh, Heathrow T5. Okay. Mm. So, you know, to take that kind of the different uh, approach to recording and to large scale excavation, I just found it really, really interesting and was following that from afar. What, what, you'll have to excuse my ignorance, what sort of things were they discovering on, on those on that project? Well, of course, it was multi-period, but it was the approach to it which involved far more interpretation during the excavation process. Right. So rather than, you know, this kind of set idea we have that you record or collect data in the field and then interpret it afterwards, mm -hmm. it was much more a seamless process. So doing it whilst excavating, did they, did yeah. they have... Um, had specialists on site. Okay. And also, Labs on site. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also ways of... Um, recording using at the time the, the newest technology so that you were going straight into a more finished um, product. So product, it was done and yeah. sealed and signed off and delivered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, I'd not, I don't know much about that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to go and look that all up now. That's good. Yes, do. <laughs> okay. So the final final question we have to, to participants is Derek and I produced a working time machine and uh, we give all all um, interviewees a, a free ride, a return ticket on the time machine. So all you have to do is tell me where you'd like to go and what you'd like to see. Um, you, you're just observing, so I, we don't let you interfere. But um, what would you like to do and see? I suppose I'll be quite predictable and say that I'd like to go back to a period in the early Bronze Age and I'd like to witness a cremation ceremony mm -hmm. uh, from a good distance uh, and see if some of my ideas about the technology and the practice were actually what they were undertaking. Um, and I'm also really interested in um, what was happening with the climate and this idea that there was a big change in, in the climate during the Bronze Age and also indications um, in Orkney at the beginning of the Bronze Age so I'd like to see whether there were these storms raging and sand blowing everywhere and what was happening What, what do you, In terms of the cremation process what, what do you expect to see? So I um, postulated through a, a lot of different types of evidence that they were actually preparing in advance for cremations by um, collecting fuel and actually having to dry it before, well, turves to burn because they didn't have much wood. Um, and so, if you like, it was a sort of anticipated event 
um, or they always were, you know, gathering fuel and, you know, it was a constant, constant process, if you like, of being prepared for cremation to take place. Um, I'd like to see um, how they were using different types of fuel and I also think that they were complete masters of that technology because they were using quite difficult resources. Mm -hmm. so I'd just like to see if I'm right in that. Okay, I like that idea. Jane, thank you so much for your time this evening and um, thank you for uh, taking part in the Korean Ruins podcast. You're very welcome and now I can get on the party bus. That's it. I think it's just parked down the road so we'll, <laughs> we'll wave it down. Well, there we go. Another great second half i enjoyed that and jane was very concise as well i like a concise yeah guest. oh it's we've had quite a few waffly podcasts recently <laughs> mainly our own fault yeah, I must yeah. Say. <laughs> so this is going to be a shorter one no i like it i like it a lot um there's something something popped up it was is really close to my current heart in that um when very early on in the second half talking about protection and scheduling and mm-hmm. um the size of monuments and the thing i've been working on lately is looking at kind of expanding our knowledge of visible monuments beyond the visible bit that you can see. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to hear that that has been done to great effect um, in Scotland on the, on the Barrow cemeteries, but actually the, the Barrows themselves are a visible point of the archaeological landscape of the archaeology itself. It's often far beyond the bit that's protected, and that's mm-hmm. something um, we all need to think about, I think. At the risk of <laughs> contradicting you here, Having just come back from Mitchell Dever, did I mention I've been at Mitchell Dever today? today? <laughs> That's a scheduled landscape. Yeah. And um, it is a relic landscape, and mm. there's so many multi time periods sub- protected there and surviving there within this ancient woodland. But my goodness, is it a pain in the bottom to manage and try and uh, <laughs> allow people to do work, and particularly in areas where it's relatively quiet. And there's no evidence, either through geophysics or through upturned trees or through visible earthworks mm. of buried or known archaeology, yeah, yeah. yet that area received the same level of protection. I suppose protection. that's tricky as well, because you're applying to a single scheduling as yes. well. Yes, yes, yeah. So when, I mean, even in when, sort of thinking about other heritage landscapes, you may have four or five barrow cemeteries nearby each other, but each one has its its own catchment, in a sense. <laughs> and while I... I I'm not sure I'd go quite as far as to say scheduling an entire landscape is the way forward, but thinking a bit beyond the monument, yeah, perhaps. There's, is, a, there's is. a lovely middle ground <laughs> yeah, to be so, found. And you're, you're absolutely yeah, yeah, right. And, and Jane's work, as she mentioned, is is really quite smart on that front. Mm. Um, but yeah, lots of interesting stuff there. Um, I, I was actually flying back into Heathrow Terminal 5 yeah, yeah. last night at uh, about 10.30 at night, and I was peering out going, oh! Oh, we're talking to Jane about this. It's a tremendous site, and that the T5 project, in terms of commercial archaeology, was something to aspire to. I think in many ways, and I was lucky or unlucky to spend, depending on your perspective, to work on the follow-up project to the Heathrow expansion. You make um, your own unluck. You do make <laughs> your own unluck. <laughs> um, and we were we were up on the Stansted expansion, okay, um, which was a similar project. So the framework project was a, a partnership between Oxford Archaeology and Wessex Archaeology, but it was it was driven by um, a kind of a, a theoretical framework um, conceived by Jill Andrews, John Lewis and John Barrett, and an aspect of the, the kind of the, the rationale and the methodology was to turn diggers, so field archaeologists, into those kind of 
taking the first step in interpretation. So rather than simply recording everything and someone else thinks about the site later, the framework rationale encouraged people at the trial's edge, as we've, we've talked about in the past with Emma, to have the first stab at interpretation so they're on the context sheets um, the, the sheets we we use to record features and 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 contexts there there was a big box for interpretation and every digger every archaeologist from first year undergrad who just oh, sorry undergraduate who just graduated right the way through to project managers were encouraged to give their interpretation of what they were digging and it was a an incredibly valuable system I think on the project of that scale to allow the interpretation to begin very very early on. Um, my own experience was slightly less good in that they the follow-up project rather than being a big open area excavation where you could kind of see the landscape of history emerge before you ours was a trial trenching project and yeah. we had 1400 trenches to do over a, a couple of seasons yeah. um, and these trenches were two meters by 30 meters each and i think it was led by our mutual colleague john millwood and i think we were Ooh. every member of staff in there were, were i think between 30 and 60 members of staff on site every day were expected to define, dig, excavate and record a trench a day. So we were flying wow. through them. It was an insane pace of work. And I did a lot of the, the survey and recording on that project and it was exhausting trying to keep up with I that pace imagine. of activity. Yeah, yeah. So whereas I think the framework project at, at um, Heathrow had given an opportunity for archaeologists to reflect on what they were doing, when it was scaled up on on that scale, it was um, it was somewhat Didn't more quite tricky. Work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think the the overriding aims and the ambition to to for field archaeologists, for commercial archaeologists, to be a part of that interpretive conversation is a good one. And I, thankfully, I think it's something that has permeated out since, mm. and it, it appears on a lot more um, context records and yeah. recording systems now than it did before. So the, I think... The framework as such isn't something that's been adopted too much. Not forward. not in the, the kind of same mm. rigorous way, I think, mm. as it was applied there, but elements of it have certainly mm. found their way to other projects, which I think is that's good. good. Uh, as I said to Jane, I'd, I'd not heard of that approach for that project mm. before and, and, and subsequently we, we've had Emma's podcast as well yeah, and yeah. yeah both brilliant concepts and mm. yeah very interesting I think the the science and interpretation beginning with the kind of a moment of breaking the soil is something I quite strongly believe in and mm. um, being kind of responsible for guiding students through that process it's I think it adds a lot of value to it and although although it was tricky at Stansted I must admit the, the, the guys in charge John Millwood and Gareth Chafee did their best to continue to inspire us and actually we I worked on a site subsequently um, that was it wasn't badged under the, the framework umbrella but it was elements of that system we used at Wessex and that was at Horton so quite near to, to Heathrow mm -hmm. uh, it was a quarry site and a big open area and we would have daily briefings with the project officers where they would fill us in on what was going on on the site and interpretations and as kind of junior archaeologists at the time it was wonderful to have that feedback mm. so, so what we were doing was kind of instantly coming back to to us in terms of the wider interpretation and then we could think about what we were doing in our own little area and i really enjoyed that element of it nice ah fair enough um one thing i love about jane's interview mm. is with people we've had in the past such as colin for example 
I don't think I want... I don't want a ticket. It might ruin I'll everything. I'll tell you what, there was no bullshit. No, it was... <laughs> she went straight in. You know what? I want to know about my research. i got some questions like, and I'm going to go back and see Spot them. on. <laughs> Absolutely. Correct thing to do, Jane. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. You can come... In fact, I'll give you another ticket. <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I kind of... When we, when we first conceived of a time machine... I mean, we clearly invented it, um, <laughs> the very concept. I, I imagined it would be really straightforward for our colleagues and, and folks we know and interview to just say, yeah, I've always wanted to know this, so I'll go back and do that. But it, archaeologists think too much sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I think. And Jane, just no nonsense, yeah. zero, zero pretense, just, I kind of like to know about this. Yeah, uh, and I what a nice it. little insight into the process of cremation as well in that, I, a lot of people see these burial mounds and these tumuli or um, uh, barrows that people see on maps and out big massive mounds they see out walking. But very few people, perhaps in a bubble, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost um, like we planned this. Yes. <laughs> um, aren't question? Are they the the big question is the simple thing is oh, it's a mound. Mm. The next step might be there's someone buried there, uh, in one important person, the chief. Yeah, but actually. Yeah, James Shane asked there's multiple cremations many associated. People, many events as well associated yeah. with the Barrow Mound. And then whether there's, yeah, whether it's sort of um, anticipated events or mm. whether it's a, a one-off event, someone died and, yeah, we'll, we'll do everything together or whether there's an element of planning involved. And, mm. yeah, really, there's so much more to, as ever with archaeology, there's so yeah. much more to just face value. We're going to have to keep going at it for a bit longer yet. <laughs> but great interview. Jane's an absolute star. Oh, uh, really wonderful. interesting interview. So, oh, no more. No more. I can't talk about Cook Islands anymore. I know. What are we going to do next? <laughs> I suppose I'll have been to Greece when we do a podcast. Next. Oh, yeah. So, did I tell you I was going to, to Greece in a couple of I didn't of know you work in Greece. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can get you back. I mean, think about this the last two podcasts. Why don't I pull you up on Greece? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so after I've... I've been to Greece. <laughs> we'll be back and we'll hopefully have scored a few more interviews by then. We may 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 do some specials as well and a few one-offs. Just some ram- rambly, yeah, chatty um, things. Just to yeah, keep, keep keep hanging out, really. Yeah, we're a bit out of interviews, unfortunately, and there's no, just nothing quite on the cards to get people in just yet. Yeah, and we're, we're as, as we said in the past, we're looking for some funding to help drive this forward and maybe travel to people rather than opportunistically grab interviews. So please feel free to visit our Patreon account and donate as you see fit it will it will go directly into helping us produce more episodes interview more people and tell lots more stories well as of last night we had um 2000 um, are we celebrating our we're celebrating 2000, 2000, listens? 2000 listens well 2000 downloads downloads I suspect people listen many times that, yeah <laughs> that's it 2000 downloads which is incredible yeah, uh, yeah. i mean i didn't know what to expect when we yeah, did this. Yeah, no, I'm so happy. And that's that. That's with a month out while we're both yeah, doing field yeah. work as well. So last month was a bit of a zero. Or not like the month before last was a bit of a zero month. Yeah, yeah. We still managed to get clock a couple of hundred listens with no podcast going out. But uh, it's really nice to know that if some of you are listening and some of you are listening regularly. And I, I just want to thank you really for tuning in and yeah. and listening. It's it's enjoyable to make, and I hope you get the same enjoyment out of listening to it. If everyone that had downloaded an episode had paid just one pence, they could have paid for half an episode. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I worry with, worry about your maths. No, you're right, 20 quid. 20 quid? Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. How dare <laughs> you? I used a calculator. <laughs> um, giving away our economic model there. <laughs> yes. But that, that's, I mean, this is yeah. why we can do it, because it's, it's relatively cheap. Yeah. But 
Imagine if everyone gave a pound. Well, that's we'd have a whole we'd, new series. We'd have a whole new series. <laughs> we could um, travel the world. Mm. We'd never come back. No, that's not what we do. <laughs> we could travel to people. We yeah. could make better sound quality. We could buy equipment so our um, interviews, unlike today's, don't sound like there's an elephant having a wee in the background. <laughs> um, but I just assumed that was you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slightly more professional than that. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you can find 50p, one pound, chuck it in our Patreon account. There might be a limit to five pounds, but that's, that's irrelevant. <laughs> but also, beyond all that, just keep listening. 